the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Actually, it's Luke. (laughs) Beginning in the 10th chapter at the first verse. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from the house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You should be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Oh, what a rich lesson from Luke's Gospel. And it's one that if I went verse by verse, we'd probably be here until tomorrow morning. It's so rich. And so... For, for your safety and mine, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going to guide us through this. We'll, we'll start by placing this passage within the context of Luke's gospel. We'll look from the points of view of the characters in the story. We'll relate this to our own spiritual journey, the eternal truth of the spiritual journey that's revealed in the gospel. Then we'll look and see how this passage instructs us as we enter into the decade of evangelism in our diocese, we'll look at how this passage invites us to the table and sends us out into the world. 
So we start by setting this passage within the Gospel of Luke. You recall from last week, we had the end of the Galilean ministry. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. He is leaving what looks like a very successful ministry. The kingdom of heaven breaking out all around. Large crowds, healing, miracles. And Jesus turns, not letting the good stand in the way of the goal. Jesus sets out to travel through Samaria to Jerusalem and to the cross. Last week we heard about the challenge of truly following Christ in this journey of transformation. And now Jesus calls 70, or perhaps 72, we'll get to that later. He calls these 70 of his disciples and commissions them to go ahead and prepare the way. And then Jesus, as he sends them out, he turns and looks back at the Galilean ministry. He sets his face toward Jerusalem and against Galilee, declaring judgment on the cities there. And then the disciples return with great rejoicing over the power that they have. And Jesus offers a corrective. He says, I've even seen Satan cast down. One of those eternal echoes that Jennifer talked about. We hear in Ezekiel and Isaiah about Satan in the very beginning. Before Adam and Eve. Satan leading a rebellion in heaven with a third of the angels following him. And being cast down to heaven. Or being cast out of heaven. We hear in John the future judgment. The war between evil and good is the great dragon, the Satan, is cast down and thrown into chains. We have the eternal one standing there saying, I have seen Satan cast down. He sees the past, he sees the future. He also sees in the very present that as the kingdom of God is proclaimed in the world, Satan is cast down, his lies are defeated by truth, his hatred defeated by love just as it was in the first century is today. When we proclaim the kingdom of God in the world around us, Satan is cast down. He falls like lightning from the sky. His power is made null. So now we've seen where this passage sits in Luke, where this passage sits in the full story of God. Let's dive into the people we meet here allow their point of view to hold a mirror to our own lives. Let's begin with the towns of Galilee, where Jesus has been ministering. For over two years, Jesus has walked among these people. He's traveled about Galilee. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand with signs and wonders. And yet we see here that for the most part, the people don't get it. Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the works done among you had been witnessed even among the Gentile towns of Tyre and Sidon. There would have been great contrition and repentance, sackcloth and ashes. We hear echoes. Echoes in the sackcloth and ashes of Gentile towns in the story of Jonah. The prophet of Israel sent to Gentile Nineveh 
to proclaim the judgment of God. And the people of Nineveh repent in sackcloth and ashes. They experience the mercy of God. And Jonah is upset. Why did you send me here to proclaim judgment if you were just going to be merciful? Jonah sits outside the gates in the hot sun. God causes a bush to grow and he gives him shade. And Jonah says, oh, this is good. And then a worm comes and eats and kills the bush and the bush wilts. And Jonah says, oh, why is it so hot? Jonah, a messenger of the kingdom of God, who just doesn't quite get the way of the kingdom. We hear echoes of the start of the ministry in Galilee as Jesus comes into the synagogue of his own hometown. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah the proclamation about the peace of the kingdom of God. And the people start mumbling, hey, this is our boy. We know this guy. We're his hometown. Maybe he can do some of that Jesus stuff he's been doing at Capernaum. And we'll get the better end of that. We'll be better because he's one of us. And Jesus looks and says, Oh, there were many widows in Israel in the days of the drought. But Elijah was sent to none of them, but to the widow near Sidon. Oh, there were many lepers in Israel, but only Naaman, the Syrian, was cleansed. And the people of Nazareth respond not with repentance, but by wanting to throw Jesus off the cliff. We hear echoes of the beginning of the ministry in Galilee, at this the close of the ministry in Galilee. John puts it a little bit more succinctly and directly as he, said, as he relates Jesus speaking to the crowd at Capernaum. He's fed the 5,000. He's gone across the lake. And the people have followed him. And Jesus looks out and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs and wonders of the kingdom, but because you got free bread for lunch. We find in Galilee a people seeking their own self-interest in the fruits of the kingdom, but unwilling to live as the people of the kingdom. Unwilling to allow their way of knowing the world to be transformed by the very presence of God incarnate. They look and they judge Jesus according to their own image of God, rather than allowing Jesus to shape and correct their way of knowing. How often do we find this own, the same blindness, the same inability to allow Jesus to correct our image of the Father in ourselves and in our churches? So now let's turn to the 70, or perhaps the 72. There's some manuscript differences between whether Luke tells us that Jesus sends out 70 or sends out 72. And these actually reflect different traditions of the way of seeing the number 70 and what it echoes in Scripture. You see, as the people come out of Egypt, they go through the wilderness, the burden is heavy, they complain. Why didn't we just stay in Egypt? At least in Egypt, we had meat to the fill. 
God sends quail in such abundance that they eat and eat until it flows from their nostrils and they're sick of the very meat they requested. And then God says to Moses, gather for me 70 of the elders of Israel. Bring them to the mountain. I will speak to you and I will place some of my spirit that I place on you upon them and they will share your burden. And this happens and they prophesy and two are left in the camp. And those two prophesy. And so there's great debate in the rabbinic tradition as to whether there were 70 plus 2 or 68 and 2 that were disobedient. And so we have here in these manuscript differences a reflection of the debate about the echo. Was it 70 or 72? I think from other echoes, I tend to side on the side of 70. We heard in the very story as the people come out and they cross the Red Sea and they come to a place with 12 wells and 70 palm trees. The 12 wells, the water of the house of Israel, 70, the nations that we hear about. 70 is the number of the nations derived from the table of nations in Genesis as the nations are scattered on the plain of Shinar at the Tower of Babel. And the reason that I think Luke probably wrote 70 is he is also referring to the tradition of the translation of Torah or actually of the Tanakh of the fullness of the Hebrew scripture from Hebrew into Greek by 70 elders gathered that's where we get the word Septuagint the translation of the 70 so I think Luke probably wrote 70 and some people said no he doesn't know the story very well it was 72 and so we have manuscripts dating back to the very earliest that we can find that say 70 or 72. Either way, Jesus calls these people out of the midst of his disciples, out of those who have followed him out of Galilee, those who got it. And he sends them to prepare the way. He commissions them with the same mission by which God commissioned John the Baptist. Go and prepare the way. Manifest the shalom of the kingdom. Manifest peace in the places where you are going. Enter a house and declare peace. Peace be upon this house. And if there is a son of peace there, your peace will rest. And if not, it will return to you. You will lose nothing in proclaiming peace. It will either rest and be multiplied in that household or it will return to you. Receive the hospitality that people have. Eat what is placed before you. Heal those who are sick. And proclaim to all, whether you are received or not received, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And we find the goal. The mission, go and proclaim. The goal, why are they doing this? We find that goal in the declaration of Jesus that the harvest is indeed plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. The goal of the 70 is not to harvest the grain. The goal is the 70 is to recruit laborers to that very harvest. It's a mission of multiplication, a mission of making disciple makers.
the mission, the goal, and now we hear the provision of this mission. Take nothing with you. Go as lambs among wolves. This is the way of faith. My way would be to pack a big backpack and lug it along so that I wouldn't be a burden to anyone, so I wouldn't have to worry about where my meal would come from, so I wouldn't have to worry about where I slept. Jesus says, no. Don't trust in yourself. Trust that the Lord will provide for you. Give that last cake of grain to the prophet, trusting that God will provide for you and your family. It's also the way of peace. Jesus is sending them onto roads that are dangerous for Jews to travel. Dangerous because of bandits and robbers. If I go carrying extras, if I go carrying a money belt at my side, extra tunics, I'm prey for the robbers. I go not worried about the people that I am sent to, but worried about protecting my stuff. They go in the way of faith and they go in the way of poverty. Francis of Assisi famously took off all that he had in the middle of the streets of Assisi. And he said, if I have anything that I call my own, if I am rich in the goods of this world, I will be compelled to defend what I have. If I am rich, I will hire armies to defeat those who come against me. But if I am poor, I am free to love all. Jesus sends the 70 out in the way of peace, the way of faith, and the way of poverty. So let's look at who these 70s are, these 70 pairs, are, or these 35 pairs, these 70 disciples are sent. Those who are sent have people they didn't ask for come into their village. And they have a choice. They have a choice to either receive peace or to refuse peace. They have a choice to participate in the shalom of the kingdom or to deny it. The shalom of the kingdom, the rightness and interdependence of all things. We see it manifest later in the community of the early church as the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that they had everything in common. And there was not among them anyone who was needy. We too are called at times as those who are sent, those who are sent to prepare the way. And at times we are also invited to receive in hospitality those who would demonstrate the kingdom to us. We are the 70 and we are the towns and the villages. Now let's look a bit at the way that this section of Luke reveals the way of our own spiritual journey. We looked last week a little bit at the way that Teresa describes the mansions of the heart, the interior castle. This week we'll look at a different map of the spiritual journey, the journey of ascent and the crisis of the cross. For many of us, 
We walk in a culture that tells us, if you try hard, you will be good. If you are good, you should try harder and be better. If you work hard, you will improve yourself. If you work hard, you will receive promotions and you will know that you are good. And that's good for a while. But there comes a point when it becomes empty. There comes a point when all of my trying, all of my goodness, all of my external success pales in comparison with the kingdom. The most disturbing day of my life was the day that I realized I had accomplished all of my goals and it was empty. This is the crisis, the cross. The time when God says, you cannot do enough on your own, but you must rely upon me. You cannot manifest the kingdom of God all by yourself, but you must rely upon me. You are not called to be a leader. You are called to follow me. The people of Galilee are living in this bliss of if I come before Jesus, if I bring him my sick, they'll be healed and we'll be good. And I can go about my life on my own terms. And that's very good during that ministry in Galilee. But as Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, as he sets his face upon the cross and asks his disciples, follow me not just into this glory, but follow me into the pain and the suffering that is the way of the kingdom, the way of glory. Many turn away. Jesus invites us to walk with him to Jerusalem. To walk with him into the shame and rejection of that ministry. Into the suffering of the cross. Into the darkness of the tomb. That we may know what is even better that we may know the glory of the resurrection, the transformation of our lives from death into life, the way of passing through the water. As Paul says, in our baptism we are crucified in Christ, that in him we may be raised in the glory of his resurrection and participate in eternal life. Jesus doesn't call us only to this glorious manifestation of the kingdom on earth. But he calls us beyond that to the glory of the eternal kingdom in heaven and on earth. So how does this lesson inform us as we enter into this decade of evangelism? Our bishop has declared this the decade of evangelism and we have here a people sent out to proclaim the kingdom, to be evangelists. What can we learn from them? First, Jesus sends them out in the way of peace. He says, go and let your peace be upon those whom you meet. What does it mean for us to cultivate peace? A peace of our own that we know how to send it and a peace that we are able to extend to others. First, this call to peace should call us to sackcloth and ashes, to a different way of knowing. Because if we look 
in ourselves, in the culture around us. We see in ourselves the unpeace that can be there. I look around, I see the name calling and violence that characterizes the debates of our time. The bitterness with which we treat those who disagree with us. Let us remember that Jesus equates calling someone a fool with murder. He places it on the same par with killing someone. It is the violence of our heart that causes us to call other people derogatory names. When our hearts are filled with violence, they cannot be filled with peace. Jesus also says the words that we say flow from the abundance of our heart. When we notice anger and spite and bitterness coming forth from our mouth, we should turn to our hearts and say, God, heal us. Heal us and fill us with peace. In that peace, we do find healing. That's the other thing that Jesus calls them to. He says, go extend your peace when it is received. Stay in that household. In that town, heal the sick. Our way of evangelism is the way of peace. It is also the way of healing. Neither shunning those who are broken, nor normalizing the destructive brokenness and idolatry of our culture. We see that around us. Those who are broken, those whose sin is not like our sin, we shun them and we send them away and say, you're not worthy to be around us. That's not the way of the gospel. That's not the way of the kingdom. That's not what Jesus calls us to. We see others who say, come, your brokenness is okay. It doesn't need healing. Come, be broken and stay broken. That's not the way of the kingdom either. The way of the kingdom says, Come in all your brokenness. Bring your brokenness before the Lord and be healed. Be healed and transformed by the love and the peace and the glory of the kingdom. So our evangelism brings peace. Our evangelism brings healing. We also live in a culture that demands a way of measuring success. I want to know if I do this right then X number of people will come and no healing. Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. He says, this is the metric of your success. Whether you are received or rejected in that town, let them know that the kingdom of God has come near. My metric of success is not in conversion or convincing or arguing. My metric of success is the faithfulness of my witness to the kingdom of God. When I have come into contact with someone, if they know whether they receive or reject, whether they know that they have come into contact with the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has indeed come near, that is the success of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the success of evangelism. And so today, wherever we are in this journey, whether we've been one of those that's been comfortable 
in the ministry of Galilee and are not quite ready to follow Jesus to the cross. Whether we're those that are sent to proclaim the kingdom or those that are called to receive the love and the peace of the kingdom. Wherever we are on this day, Jesus invites us to peace. Jesus invites us to his table. In the mystery of worship, Jesus comes as guest into our lives. And he stands at this table as host, inviting us to eat what is set before us, the very body and blood of Christ. He invites us to come and be nourished, to come and be healed. And then he sends us out. He sends us out into the world around us, once again, as lambs among wolves. He sends us out to bring peace into a culture of violence, to bring love into a culture of hate, to go trusting not in our own provision, not in our own capability, not even trusting in our own readiness or fearful of our own unreadiness, but to go trusting in the provision of God, walking in faith, trusting that the Spirit of God goes before us, preparing the good works that God has laid out for us, and trusting that the Spirit of God goes within us. So let us go rejoicing not in all the circumstances, not in the show, not in the worldly results, all the signs and wonders of the kingdom. Instead, let us rejoice that our names, my name and your name, our names are forever written in heaven by the mighty power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.